Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking short shorts and crop tops for days. We're talking more pedophilia. And we're talking eat shit and live, Bill. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking flat as a board and needs a screw. Oh boy. <laughs> Judy, Judy, Judy. Judy, Judy, Judy. I, um, oh man, I, I quote unquote love Judy, but, uh, welcome everyone. We are discussing Sleepaway Camp, an episode that has, well, been requested more times than I care to admit, and, mm-hmm. um, uh, the, the final entry in our camp series, both, uh, figuratively and literally. There we go. Yes, we're finally headed to camp for the final week of camp. And I'm excited. You know, I feel like we've held this off for a number of years in part just because every time we kind of considered doing it, somebody else was covering it. And we thought, eh, we'll just wait a little while longer. And I think also because we just didn't feel super passionately about it. But yeah, I feel like there's been a turning of the tides in even just the last couple of years around the dreaded discourse trace and um i think there's enough interesting things on the playing field to now have a really good conversation about it i I agree i mean you know whenever we get hit one of these uh like seminal you know like uh, a classic horror films it's always kind of like well so many things have been said about said film what else can we say and you know what we're gonna try our darndest today but we're gonna have a really good conversation sounds good (laughs) But before we do that, why don't we bring in our guest that's waiting in the wings? So everyone, she is a columnist, writer, editor, trans historian, and horror lover who specializes in analyzing trans representation in horror. You may have also heard her music under her alias, The Blue Iris, or you may know her from our previous episode on Der Samurai from last year, which was a really good episode with a really good conversation. Mm -hmm. Please welcome Tenbaki. Hi, hi, hi. Hey, hey, hey. I'm here. I'm wearing... Short shorts and a crop top. Oh, are you? <laughs> yes, and I'm uh, and I'm very ready to uh, say the things that everyone else has said slightly differently. Yes, exactly. Let's do it. <laughs> well, welcome back to the show, Tim. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm honestly really excited to be back, and also kind of stoked that we're talking about Sleepaway Camp because it's just I don't know. It's just one of the movies I've seen so many times. I just keep going back to it, and it's always interesting to me. Well, it's so interesting, because Joe, as you said j- just, you know, a minute ago, uh, we, neither one of us have felt super passionately about this film. So this was not a film that I grew up with. I didn't see it for the first time t- until I was in college, and mm-hmm. I didn't, I hadn't really watched it again since then. Uh, so, Tan, I'm curious, what is your, well, what's your history with this film? Let's start there. Yeah, well, I saw this movie pretty early on getting into horror. I was definitely not fully aware or out as a trans person at the time Mm -hmm. um and so my brain honestly when i saw the reveal and the ending i wasn't even like whoa that was messed up i was just like oh that was interesting or something Mm -hmm. along those lines and then kind of like as years passed i was like 
why am I so interested in this? Like, why do I find this movie so intriguing? Like, something about this film just kept drawing me back and back. And then um, after I, um, like, transitioned and was out, I, you know, I kind of went back and talked about it. I, I had, like, a small essay that I had put out in, like, maybe 2020-era-ish, talking about, like, how the movie is sort of transphobic, but also... Mm-hmm is it okay for me to like it still? And like, yep, what is the ramifications is. <laughs> of that? So it's kind of a complicated relationship, to be honest. Um, a lot of back and forth. I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of nuance here. I mean, admittedly, like, I, I have not necessarily resisted talking about this film, but it's kind of a thing where I'm like, I, I like this movie. It's not one of my favorites. Uh, I remember the first time I saw it when it ended, I was kind of like, it was less so the fact that, you know, what the twist is than the fact that it just ends. And I was kind of like, oh, mm. that's it. Like, that, that's all there is to this movie. It really seems like we started with this and worked backwards from there. So a first time viewing for me, I was just kind of like, eh, it's fine um I, the, the mishmash of tones well i don't know i i say there's a mishmash but I, honestly after covering so many camp films in the past couple weeks show it's mm-hmm. kind of a thing where i'm like i don't know i think it's just camp and i think 19 year old trace wasn't fully a- aware or understanding of what camp was and therefore i was like oh it's just bad or it's stupid right. when i do think there's more to it than that Yeah, I'll admit that I gained a better appreciation for the film over time. I think like you, Trace, it's not one of my favorites, but I think I approached it through the same lens initially. Like I was doing a massive deep dive into 80 slashers Mm -hmm. because I think I think I first saw this when I was prepping for my slasher course that I was teaching at university. And I was like, all right, this is one of the infamous ones. But like, when you know the twist, you spend the movie waiting for it. And then yeah, it's right at the very end. It doesn't get explored. So it does just feel like it's shock for shock's sake. And that can feel underwhelming until you start to pay attention to like, this film is incredibly queer there's a lot of interesting dynamics to it uh and some of them maybe feel intentional some of them maybe feel like happenstance but even just doing the research for this episode i was like there's some really intriguing takes on this film and i just don't think i was giving it credit because unfortunately the twist overshadows everything well I also think, <laughs> I think a big issue for me is, again, less so the the machinations of the twist, the reveal, the implications of some of the queer stuff here, and more so that I don't think writer-director Robert Hiltzik really thought about any of this. So, you know, when we have our gay daddy scene, it's like, okay, well, like, I, I just don't think he, he was, he was just like, oh, yeah, let's put that in there because it's, it's weird and funny or whatever, or as you said, Joe, for shock value. So, I'm... I'm always left a bit wanting when this film ends, uh, and I still feel this way today. But yeah, I, I have, I like this movie a lot more <laughs> than, I, than I did on a first watch. Yeah, kind of echoing your comment about uh, Robert Hiltzik, I've actually seen interviews where people ask him, like, "What did you like? What was the point of this scene that was mm-hmm. kind of homophobic?" And he says it's foreshadowing. And my kind of my opinion on it is that he's so clueless as to yes. the trans and queer themes in this film that to him that's kind of all just the same like he's just like oh yeah trans gay whatever it's 
right it's that you know and that's it's all just a little odd yeah well so, so i a i have the screen factory blu-ray of this and it has not one not two but three commentaries on this fucker and i listened to the one between him and film historian jeff hayes now granted i don't know much about jeff hayes's work but he was the owner of a sleepaway camp like franchise fan site oh, and okay. he wound up like you know filming his own short film called judy which was kind of a oh, spin off yeah. of that Mm. And then he did executive produce uh, 2008's Return to Sleepaway Camp. And so... That's number four, right? Uh, Kind of. It's kind of five. Cause four, yeah, it's sort of five. Yeah, four okay. was unfinished in the 90s because of legal issues. Oh, okay. Fun, fun. Yeah, but but but, but nevertheless, Return is... It's almost... It, it does the Halloween 2018 thing where it ignores all the sequels and acts as a, you know, 20 years later or 25 years later sequel to the original film. Right. Okay. So what is the deal with the commentary? Do they get at any of these issues? So the, the thing is, Hiltzik seems very uninterested <laughs> in any mm. questions anyone has to ask him about this movie. And I don't know if it's because he's been asked them all so many times already, but I think this commentary was from like a 2002 DVD that they poured it over. Okay. And I don't know, whenever whenever Hayes asks him a question, he's kind of like, yeah, I don't know, whatever. So oh, it, gosh. And there's something to be said, right? Because whenever we talk about problematic things, I, I feel like I always come in with like, well, I don't think the intent was bad, or I think it was just underthought. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. You've only said it for five weeks straight. I know. <laughs> but, but it's a thing where I'm like, I don't, I don't see any malicious intent. But again, maybe the answer is, but sometimes the lack of intent or the lack of care is like not straightforwardly malicious in and of itself. I don't know. Well... And Ten, maybe you can shed some light on this, because I feel like there are certain key texts in trans queer horror where people, you know, have maybe had their lives directly affected because idiots have watched the film and been like, that's what a trans person is. And I'm wondering, like, does this have the same kind of negative stigma as something like, ooh, I don't know, Silence of the Lambs? Right, right. I can hear where you're coming from on that. And that's such a hard question to yeah. answer. <laughs> I mean, I recognize I'm asking you to speak for all trans people. Yes. Which is obviously not the desired trans attention. people. Please tell yeah, us. <laughs> I mean, that's obviously impossible, right? But I can give my opinion. And mm -hmm. I, I think that there is definitely some harm in, in this film in the sense that, you know, I, having seen it for the first time, like I mentioned before, living at the time as a man in Indiana, a, a young person, impressionable. I mean, mm -hmm. I was uneducated in a lot of things that I know about now. And I, you know, I didn't even see at first how offensive this film really could be or and, and kind of honestly is. I just it was just a goofy slasher that yeah. intrigued me for some reason. Um, however, I personally like to think of Angela's sort of like a revenge kind of way yeah. like mm. in a revenge film sort of way there's a lot of scenes in this movie and a lot of uh things that the characters say to her that uh could be seen under a different lens as transphobia like directly mm -hmm. and i almost wish that it had gone like one more step into that like i almost wish it was purposeful even though i know it wasn't right because i want it to be there so bad like just people saying and about the sports and talking about her body and and puberty and just like her the sexual tension between her and like every scene and and almost all of the murders are related to this like 
aspect of gender. And t- to me, yep. it, it's kind of like uh, revenge. Like it, she gets her revenge on these people who who are are like this. Sir. And so I like to think of it that way. However, like you said, it, it can be harmful to people that are uneducated. I mean, if it's your first time ever seeing a trans person as this film, <laughs> right? That's going to be rough. And I know people like to say she's in trans. I'm not going to get into that at this moment. Maybe we'll get, get yeah, into we'll that in a that. second. I mean, well, no, I, 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 no I'll, I'll even like segue that into the two. The, I'm going to say two sequels because I'm, that's really kind of like the era we're working with here. The two 80s sequels. Because I actually do prefer Sleepaway Camp 2 and 3 to this first movie because they are more straightforward comedies. Um, like mm-hmm. I would say that this movie is camp, whereas those films are camp. And I, yeah, I, I, that distinction I hope I think is really important. But Sleepaway Camp Two does immediately say, you know, oh, Angela went and got like she got a surgery to make her gender transition, so it explicitly makes her trans mm-hmm. in those two sequels. Where in this film, as is the case with so many films of this type, we don't know how Angela feels. I'm sorry, Angela yes. or Peter, however you want to call her. Him. Right, right, right. And I, I think that's one of the things that folks maybe struggle with with this film is that at least in those sequels. Angela has agency. She has a voice. She has decided who she is and what she will be called, what she will respond to, and so on. And I think that's something that's, you know, those movies are very silly. They're (laughs) very hilarious. But that is the one piece where you're just like, oh, it feels like they actually thought this through in greater detail. To a certain extent. Whereas in this first film, you've got nothing to work with. Like, Angela is almost a prisoner in her own film. And I think that's one of the reasons why I like your preferred reading, Ten, because that's sort of one of the things I was alluding to off the top, is like, people have said, yeah, you know, you can look at this as an incredibly transphobic or, um, you know, it's pathologizing gender nonconforming people, or... You can look at it on the flip side and be like, actually, it's about a heroic trans girl who fucks up everybody who crosses her path. Yeah, you know, and I mean, it's dark. Obviously, it's a horror film. I'm not saying that, you know, trans people should kill transphobic people. <laughs> I'm just saying it's it's cathartic. To yes. Have, yeah, well, I, I heard that. I, I, uh, I'm just saying it's cathartic to see, you know, something where that she gets kind of her revenge and and yes. i think a lot of people say the same about um you know rape revenge films and things along those same nature and right. and part of this touches on some of that with the you know the cook in the beginning and things like that and like the way that you know her boyfriendish paul like kind of keeps crossing her boundaries repeatedly there's a lot of stuff in this film that even borders on general revenge too and i think mm-hmm. i mean that's my big final big read on the film that i like to view it that way but right no for sure i I think too i mean when discussing problematic aspects because i'm sure we'll go through plenty of them but again uh, for me with the transphobia it comes down to a uh you know you are having a a trans person again quote unquote maybe depending on how you view it as a monster you know uh, a woman who presents female but has a penis is is monstrous in this film Mm mm-hmm me personally, and again as a cisgender man, uh, I, I've kind of moved past that and more onto the the abuse that led to Peter go- becoming Angela. And I think too, and right. this is the last time I mentioned the sequels, the issue with the sequels and making Angela like legitimately 
trans, mm-hmm. uh, is that you're saying, the sequels are saying, well, the abuse that Peter experienced at the hands of his aunt did create a trans person. And that's not really the narrative that anyone wants to generally how it, it works. Yeah, yeah. E- exactly. Right. And so right. while I prefer those sequels, I understand that the problematic aspect of mm-hmm. what Angelo's art takes in those films is it kind of muddies the waters a bit more. And especially, I mean, you know, I live in Texas where we're having parents oh, who who have trans children are being considered abusive and people can report them for 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 helping their children transition and that is mm-hmm. obviously not something they were thinking about in 1983 probably but um it definitely colors my viewing experience here yeah and i mean if we're talking direct context and not you know pulled subtext and meaning which is how i'd like to think of this film a lot it, it is sort of uh perpetuating a real fear that that conservatives have which is that people are creating trans people, uh, you right. know, and that that you know by allowing your kid to do these things, you're you're forcing them into it. Which, while I'm aware, isn't the reality of the situation. This movie does it could be leveraged as a weapon. Yeah, it could be leveraged as a weapon. And while I'd like to, you know, think of Angela as like, uh, you know, what she can be taken back and she can be saved and she's no longer problematic for me and she she can mean something to me, like. I recognize that that's that's not the reality of all viewings of this film. Well, Mm -hmm. but even pulling back another layer, you could also make the argument that the reason Angela has become a murderer is because she has lived most of her life with gender dysphoria. Like, you know, Peter Mm -hmm. was is a boy who was abused and forced to live as a girl. And that is not seemingly how he identified. And that led to him becoming uh, having violent outbursts, you know. And so, again, yeah, trans mask. There's so many things there that I'm like, again, I, I can't really... I can address and say yes to all of these things, but I, that's kind of what I like about it. And again, rewatching this, I was like, oh, I love that, you know, you can make all these different readings. Some can be very troubling. Some mm-hmm. cannot be. Some can be cathartic, as you said, Tan. So there's no easy answer for, for me on this one. I mean, it's a no. polarizing movie. You yeah. Know? Yeah, but that's ultimately where I ended up realizing, oh, this movie is actually a lot more interesting. And I think we can have better conversations around it as a result, right? Like, I think for a long time, this was just the capital P problematic text that really just cemented the the horrible, oh, trans person equals killer thing. And like, we had seen so much of it at the point where this film was coming out, right? Like, we really get into it with Psycho, then we get the Brian De Palma of it all, right. and then we get to this. And I don't know, it it feels interesting and maybe even a little exciting that folks have managed to appropriate this text. Like, I'm, I've actually seen more trans people say that they like it while they acknowledge that it can be harmful. And I think that that's something that as queers, we often strive to do with the things that hurt us, right? We're looking for <laughs> opportunities to unpack it and understand it, but also to say, fuck you, you don't get to have this. We've actually made it our own, and now we love this messy bitch. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. And I, I I, love that there's so many readings. I've read, I recently read, um, and I, I, I apologize, I cannot recall who wrote this uh, article, but it was arguing uh, sort of what you were talking about, Trace, which mm-hmm. was that Peter was a trans masculine representation rather than a trans feminine because 
uh, he's living as Angela, and should and and that's where the dysphoria is coming from, and that's why he's uncomfortable mm. because he's not supposed to be in those situations. He's uncomfortable with with being around the women and everything like that. I thought that was super interesting as well. While while not relatable to me in that direct context, I thought it was super interesting to see other people's takeaways that are so different than mine, but also still right. so cathartic for other trans people. But it's so mm-hmm. funny though, because again, we're talking about how yeah, there are so many reads of this film. Coming from a script from a man who clearly didn't think about any of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It almost makes you wonder if this is one of those, like, secret queer films where maybe there were either, uh, like, trans people working on it or people who identified as queer. And they were like, well, you know what? When we dress Aunt Martha, we're going to make her look like a drag queen. And when we outfit all of the boys at the camp, we're going to make sure that they're in the most revealing outfits we can possibly find. Like, we're just yeah. really going to queer this bitch up. I mean, look, when we get to Aunt Martha, because, I mean, even the actress herself, uh, Desiree Gold, she told, she read the script and she told this director, I can't do this. Like, these lines are weird, and they're not at all in line with anything else in your film. And he right. basically told her, you are going to say these lines if I have to mime it for you. <laughs> wow. And, Jesus. But but it's like, again, like, what? so that was in- like, the, the camp of that, those scenes, and I'm mm-hmm. sorry, the two scenes Aunt Martha is present in, those are very deliberately, intentionally over the top. Mm-hmm. And it's just, again, yeah, I, I, I'm a little bit perplexed by the fact that Hiltzik seems so un unwanting right. to, to to talk about what he was thinking and maybe it's because he wasn't he was like oh i just thought it'd be funny like maybe that is the simplest answer and that is the correct answer Possibly. yeah but i can't help but wanting to think like no like there had to have been something else going on in your brain when you were writing and making this hmm. i mean as much as i'd like to imagine that maybe he had queer thoughts or queer parents and was feeling out those things and trying to figure those out in in his scripts i also kind of think it might have just been honestly him banking on the other popular films that were already doing this right uh, before him as my i you know i don't want to take away too much his credit but i mean he's not giving me much of an option here there's nowhere since this movie's come out that he's ever showed support Mm -hmm. or commented more than a vague oh yeah you know that's how it is like kind of response about anything queer subtext or context in this film and then you contrast that with Felissa Rose, who is like a fucking ally to the community, loves this character, does all the con circuits, and is basically like, yeah, you know what? I, I do claim this character. Like, So here's the thing. I mean, as much as I think Felissa Rose is great, uh, I, I can't help but wondering, like, what would a 2022 version of Sleepaway Camp look like? And I think it would actually be unpacking all of these issues, right? It would be like, what has society done to them? And I think we would be interrogating the impact of like living in a, a gendered violent society. I think it would still end up getting heaps of trouble. But also I do think that Angela would probably be played by a trans woman. Well, I think too with Felissa Rose, I mean, I, I think she's, I, I do like her. I find her very, very endearing in her interviews, but it's also like she has kind of capitalized on this character. Um, right. Which mm. I get it, you know, that, 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 that's your bread and butter. Like, this is the one movie you're known for. But it's like, you know, when she's on Joe Bob as the quote unquote mangled dick expert, it's kind of like, oh, okay, God. like may, may, maybe we, we, maybe we don't. A little bit on this. I like Felissa Rose and she is, is supportive. Like you said, she's actually shared 
things that I've written about this film specifically to right. like comment, probably because I, I said I liked the movie <laughs> in, yeah. in, in, in the text. But um, but I do appreciate that. I do agree, I you know, kind of echoing what you were both saying, which is, you know, she is not a, a trans woman. And so she's representing a character that is seemingly beloved by a lot of trans people right. and is a trans character themselves and does like you said capitalize off it there there's there's definitely a, a gray sort of like uh is that okay is it not okay right i do love the film and, and she seems like a genuine person from from all the things that i've seen from her and i do appreciate that yeah yeah well okay so why don't we put a pin in all this for a minute because this film we'll have a lot to talk about once we get to the plot but let's yes Go into a little bit how this film was made, which admittedly, there's, after weeks and weeks of very dense production histories, Joe, I'm happy to mm-hmm. say that we don't have a very dense one for this. It is <laughs> m- much like Hiltzik himself, very simple. <laughs> Clearly, we have no idea what was going on when this film got made. <laughs> so, okay, writer-director Robert Hiltzik was in film school at NYU, and he wanted to make a movie. So, he started with a camp setting because he liked the idea that, in a camp, kids are free to be kids outside of the watchful eyes of their parents. Uh, you get to see kids as they are in their natural element, for lack of a better term. And also, Friday the 13th made a shit ton of money. Yeah, let's yes. not pretend that didn't influence. I, I will say, though, and I might get shit for this, but, you know, Joe, you and I have made our, like, uh, ambivalence towards the Friday franchise well-known. I, I think this is a, uh, maybe not better, but more entertaining movie than Friday the 13th, because I do think that first Friday is quite the original? boring. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's obviously an opinion, but I, I, I could agree. Yeah. Um, The filming of Sleepaway Camp took place in Argyle, New York, near Summit Lake, at a camp formerly known as Camp Algonquin. And working with a budget of $350,000, filming for Sleepaway Camp started in September of 1982 and finished five weeks later in October of that year. And unlike many of its contemporaries, which had adults portraying youth, the cast of Sleepaway Camp was primarily made up of adolescent actors. So. You have Felissa Rose, who played who plays Angela, uh, was thirteen or fourteen, and Jonathan Tierston, who played Ricky, was seventeen years old. Oh wow! Oh okay. right. So again, thirteen year old girl, <laughs> like being this role. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot to put on a young actor. Just but I don't think bit. she was in as much of the scenes where, like, it's not her face though, right? Uh, no, that's actually Tierston playing the killer. Yes, because they didn't want to have like two. Like, I, I guess they thought her hands would have been too like too much of a giveaway. But also, Felicia Rose's mother was like, "I don't want my daughter like doing the kills." And as most people probably know, the final shot is actually a face cast right. of Felicia mm-hmm. Rose on top of an as until now unnamed drunk college student who was okay getting naked. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Consent. We'll circle back to it. <laughs> The parents brought their kids up to the camp and left. So almost no parents other than Felissa Rose's were on set. So it actually was really like a summer summer camp. camp. (laughs) Yes, when they were filming this movie. But I guess Rose and Tiersten had a sort of crush on each other. Okay, so this is really weird. So there's a featurette on this Blu-ray. And the two actors they got back, um, well, I'm sorry, they got a couple. But they got the woman that plays Judy, and they got Rose, and they got Tiersten. And, oh, and they got Desiree Gold as well. But Tiersten kind of goes on this thing saying that, there was a scuffle or a tiff or an issue between he and Rose. They got along really, really well, but I guess they made out a couple times. Um, again, like, <laughs> let, let, let the age gap, like, just kind of think of it what you will. But yeah. he knew, well, I can't 
do anything more than this. And he doesn't come out and say it, but it really reads as, I couldn't fuck her, so I wanted to do something else. So oh, shit. when the extras came on, they were of age, 18 and 19 years old. So Tirsten kind of moved over towards them, and Rose got upset. And so it started causing tension on the set, to the point where uh, Hiltzik had to halt production and lock them in a room and told them to figure it out. Oh, that's very mature as well. Wow, they're, they're kids. They said they were like 16 and 13 or something? So she was she was 13 or 14, he was 17. Wow, mm. that's... You just lock them in a room and tell them to figure it out. I mean, what? They're, they're literally kids. Like, yeah. what are they going to figure out? It's a little... It's weird, but apparently they did figure it out, and it's all fine and gravy, and they both have very fond memories of this of this filming experience. Uh, so. Oh, right, man. Right. The 80s. The 80s were wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, everything here seemed to be pretty fine. I mean, again, it's a little unorthodox to not have parents here when you're dealing with child actors, but mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. When it came to the film's rating... Oh, actually, I wanted to say this, too, to touch again on uh, how we're talking about this film ripping off things. Hiltzik, in an interview, talks about how films have gone on to rip off his ending. And he does this stupid thing where he's like, <coughs> the crying game ripoff. <coughs> oh, and I'm like, God. Get okay, over yourself. Let's... <laughs> <laughs> like what? come on so he thinks the crying game ripped off his movie just because of the ending oh, i'm sorry dear. the ending of this movie not the ending of the crying game because that's not the end of that movie no, no right that's silly and like that's not even an original idea anyway in mm-hmm. this film nope 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 and yeah it he'll take to in my opinion does not come off well in any of this but i doubt he cares right but when it came to the film's rating, he was really worried that they were going to give it an X rating. But when they called him, they said, you got an R. And so they're like, cool. Um, I guess they thought they were going to get an X because because of the full frontal nudity. Right. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Um, I do not understand the distribution model for this movie. So, hey, <laughs> there's no box office information for this. Okay. I can't tell you exactly how much it made. But... I do know that it opened in 85 theaters in New York City on November 18th, 1983, against fellow newcomers Yentl, mm. A Christmas Story, and Amityville 3D. Nice. Hiltzik claims that Sleepaway Camp performed better than all of those films on its opening weekend, but I have to believe that that was just in New York and not nationwide, since as right. far as I can tell, this film did not get a nationwide release. Huh. Okay. Right, I think it was regionally in 83 and then in LA in 84. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, was yeah. like literally the only releases that it had in theaters, to my to my knowledge. No, I, I think you're right, Tan. Even that LA, yeah, it was in May of 84, so almost six months after its New York premiere. So I have to believe, because you know this is around the time the home video market starts blowing up and we're getting right. rental stores, so I think this really found its audience on home video, which is not unlike the films we've been covering the past couple weeks, Joe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and once again, folks, you know, we're sort of trespassing slightly from camp into cult territory and so on. But I, I guess this in a way circles back to Drop Dead Gorgeous, which of course was the first film in this cycle, which is like, I think this was made to make money. Like it, it was never, it was never <laughs> made say. to be like... Well, I mean, shocking. Most films would uh, <laughs> arguably want to make money, but it feels like all the other films had, I dare say, well, obviously not Nurse 3D, but <laughs> the two middle ones had artistic ambitions to them, whereas I think this was a very commercially minded film. Like, we wanted to make money. We saw the home video market exploding. Let's see if we can make a familiar looking film to what has come before in the last couple of years. It's so funny, Joe, because in that Nurse 3D conversation, you said, you know, I don't really know if a lot of this is camp or if you didn't have 
uh, Paz de la Huerta's performance, would this film be that campy? Right. And I, but you also like you know you said I don't I didn't find much to latch onto outside of that character, and mm-hmm. I feel similarly about this movie and the Aunt Martha character. Oh, uh, interesting. Okay, I can see it. Yeah, I mean you're you're attracted to weirdness and like yeah. <laughs> kind of oddball aspects of films, so that doesn't surprise. Um, but yeah, so with critical response, we're looking at a 79% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 6.4 out of 10. And over on Letterboxd, we've got a 6.6 out of 10. So contemporary reviews, as y'all said, it was frequently compared to Friday the 13th due to their shared settings and a whodunit plot. Um, I'm a little surprised that Happy Birthday to me rarely, if ever, came up in these comparisons. Because I think the endings of both films, while not comparable on the surface, but just in their batshit like left mm-hmm. turn, that though they're comparable in that way. Right. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. But um, yeah, we got uh, some critics at the time. A tasteless picture about mysterious murders at a summer youth camp that obscenely blends beheadings, stabbings, pubescent impulses, homosexuality, and transvesticism, which is not the correct term, with a Mm -hmm. cast of junior high school actors. A shockingly good slasher film was a good review. Uh, If you use the relatively fine first Friday the 13th as a measuring stick, uh, it's just another crazed killer stalking nubile summer campers. But this time there are some truly creative killings and interesting plot twists. I agree with the former. (laughs) Nubile? Really? Like these these kids are clearly (laughs) underage. (laughs) Maybe they were used to, again, like movies of the time casting older actors. So they just thought they were. I guess. Was that review written by Artie the Cook? (laughs) Yeah. And the only kids that are in it that are older are like the counselors. But I could see maybe if you're like half paying attention that you don't know they're supposed to be like older, maybe. I Mm -hmm. I will tell you this right now. Outside of Ricky... And Angela and maybe Paul. Oh, I'm sorry, and Judy. <laughs> I'm hard pressed to tell you to distinguish between any of the other kids in this movie. Pop quiz: Who's Mike and who's Billy? Oh Go. my god, the boys! I, <laughs> they all blend together for me. That's fair. That's They're fair. all just hot and they wear short shorts and crop tops. Yes. <laughs> no, I do like the mullet guy who has the um, blue oyster shirt, uh, blue oyster cult shirt. You don't even know his name. I think it's yeah, Kenny. Yeah, the one, you know, Kenny? he gets killed. Yeah, 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 Kenny. He oh my gets god, killed under the, the one. Canoe. You know the one. He gets killed. You guys know. <laughs> No, whenever we have Ronnie at the end, I was like, "Is he? has he been in this movie before? I have no idea. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh well, no, Ronnie's Ronnie, wearing the shortest Ronnie's shorts pretty of all. Clear. He's, he also, Ronnie has like a very particular way of acting. He's just like really buff. He's just like, mm-hmm. whoa, this is happening? Like, And I <laughs> love that about that guy. <laughs> yeah, he's giving strong New Jersey vibes to me. <laughs> yes. Uh. But nevertheless, um, it doesn't seem like this film, I mean, again, it had its viewers, but it didn't seem like there was an active fan base. And also, apparently, Felissa Rose's mother had to transfer her to another school because she endured bullying at the oh. hands of others because of this film. Hmm. That's pretty wild. But again, that's something that her mom mentions. Oh, yeah, because they interview her mother on this Blu-ray, but Felissa doesn't say anything about that. So, huh. again, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, maybe she doesn't want to talk about it, you know. Right. Entirely possible. Um, <laughs> but nowadays, the film's ending is, of course, considered one of the most shocking horror movie endings of all time. It has grown a cult following from fans of the slasher genre and garnered a critical reappraisal of sorts. It was this Jeff Hayes guy, by the way, the one who executive produced the Return to Sleepaway Camp, and he he had this website. It was like sleepawaycampmovies.com. I know the website. Yeah, and so he was such a big fan that Fangoria in 2002 reached out to him and said, hey, do you want to plan a reunion at, at our next like convention thing? Yeah. Okay. And he did. And this was the first time... Well, he said... 
he said, let me give you the whole cast. Because I think they just wanted, like, Hiltzik and Rose and maybe Tirsten. But he was like, L- I think I can get more. And so he got, like, most of the cast. And oh, it was... Well, you have to have Karen Fields. Come on. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing if you don't have Judy? Oh, God. That, that side ponytail, which is just a plethora of hair. It's iconic. Yes. It's amazing. Fantastic. But that was the first time the cast really knew or learned. So again, this is like 2002, 2003, where they learned, oh, shit, people like really like this movie. And so, <laughs> I, again, with that commentary with Hiltzik, I'm like, I wonder if he just, again, didn't believe yet that people gave a shit about this movie, which is why he sounds so disinterested in everything Hayes is Because, again, th- that commentary, it's like Hayes is just like, I'm a big super fan. Let me ask you all these questions about these random details that I've noticed. And he's like, I don't know. I don't remember that. <laughs> I mean, he was he was probably like, oh, God, is this guy even legit? Who is this person? It's like asking Harrison Ford about Star Wars. He's like, I don't want really care. Yes. <laughs> it's right. just like, I don't I have nothing to say. Like, what do you mean you have nothing to say? Everyone wants to hear what you have to say. That's that's always an interesting thing with fandom, though. I mean, look, I'm not going to pretend like I've, I've not sat here and like, you know, gone over details of some of my favorite horror movies. But sure. I don't know. I, I personally, I feel a little silly asking the actor of a movie or, or someone involved with it when it's like, oh, yeah, what about yeah. th- this hat that was on this desk in this scene and it said this? And like, Oh, that's too much. I don't I don't really care about any of that personally. That's too much. <laughs> that's I, too much. I, yeah, I don't like that. But anyway, uh, so yeah, uh, I mean, that's honestly really all I have. I mean, the film has kind of gone through a bunch of stuff, uh, 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 th- those reappraisals, and it spawned two sequels. I'm sorry, it spawned two sequels in the 80s, an unfinished sequel in the 90s, and then a reboot sequel, legacy sequel in 2008. Um, supposedly, a reboot is in the works again, starring no, Felicia Rose, but I don't, no, yeah, I don't, not. I don't, I don't believe that. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I would be on board with a, like, remake, but only if it, like, had trans and queer people involved and right. were actually trying to tell the story right. Because I feel mm-hmm. like it could be, it could be really good if, if there was someone with something to actually say behind it. Because it right. said so much without even trying. Like, so maybe if we tried, <laughs> it could, it could be something <laughs> Imagine special. Imagine what would happen. Yeah. Well, I actually think, too, I mean, I, I, Joe, you and I have mentioned this multiple times, but the Slumber Party Massacre remake from Sci-Fi last year, where it's like, oh. look, mm-hmm. you're remaking, you know, a feminist horror film that was pulled back because of, like, the Roger Corman of it all. But you right. now, this remake, you know, goes Wonderful. forward with those feminist themes, and it's very subversive. And so I could see something like that being done. Uh, oh, it was uh, amazing. Yeah, I love exactly. that. I love that remake or reboot or whatever you want to call it. The, the, the it shower is, yeah. scene with the guy for no uh, reason. So good. Incredible. So good. And so I, I would love to see something, something like that come out of this this franchise. Because, again, the tone lends itself there. Mm-hmm. Although, although, could you imagine one done straight face? Like, not campy. Whoa, wow. That'd be interesting. No, I think, honestly, I think I'd have to be campy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In this day and age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and honestly, for me, like... Like, I feel like as a fan, I wouldn't want to see it done another way. Plus, if you're going to have a trans person be the killer, it has to be done right. I just feel like I would be so like, ugh. If it was the same thing again, I'd just be like, oh, like you you just did the same thing again. Like, we've seen it. Like, let's give us more. Like, you Uh, know. Honestly, and I know this is not the point of the conversation, but like if we get a remake or reboot or whatever of this, I think that that reveal has to happen at the end of the first act. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it's got to be early. It's got to yeah. be, or you just know already. Like, it's yeah. not, you know, like a bit kind of thing where they just casually mention it in the beginning and like right. like <laughs> passively and you're like, oh, they're trans and then they just are. 
or just <laughs> yeah. do the uh the friday the 13th remake version where it's like yep we're just gonna sum up this entire first film in oh. those opening 10 minutes and then the rest of the movie is what happens after yeah yeah mm. Evil i like Dead that too oh yes <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, that, that's it. So why don't we jump into the plot of this movie? Okay, so I'm I'm interested to hear what both of you think just from the jump, because everyone always talks about this film as a whodunit, but I think it's okay. super obvious. Like, the film literally spells out that the camp is going to be closed because of some horrendous thing from the yeah, very the opening. Yeah, the first shot. Yeah, because we've got this deserted summer camp we end this sort of like slow series of pans on the for sale sign for camp arawak which is where the film takes place and then following the opening scene which we'll unpack in great detail i'm sure but basically what happens to young angela and young peter uh it seems pretty obvious to me that angela has died and young peter has survived um that that's so because I, I thought what you were going to be asking us is isn't it obvious that Angela's the killer because I actually think it's always obvious you? that Angela's the killer. <laughs> I think they're both obvious, honestly. Yeah. It, well, if you know, if you know. Well, but the, and that's the thing. So I, I I definitely knew when I saw this for the first time. So it's impossible for me to say what I would have thought if I had just blindly seen this without knowing anything about it. Mm-hmm. But on my first viewing, I was very much kind of like. This this is like the big shocking twist that everyone talks about, and again, it's not even just Angela's a boy, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it's uh just the fact that she's the killer. Like, come on, like it's yeah. kind of obvious. Well, there's yeah. only two options: it's either her or, or it's Ricky. Ricky. Yeah. Well, well, I don't know how far ahead we want to go, but there go ahead. there is that shot where Ricky is the killer in the movie. He he does kill Judy. It's actually him standing in the doorway. You can see him. Well, so <laughs> so here's the thing, though. B- because Tiersten was used as a stand-in for all of the murder scenes, so it's always his hand. It's always it's ah. his head under the canoe whenever uh, that one kid gets drowned. They show, him, they show his face and everything. It well, seems and, and so, so that's silly. the thing where it's like, well, is it meant to be Ricky or is it meant to be Tiersten standing in for Angela? I don't yeah. know the answer to that like question. The t- at the time, the film was so low quality and low budget that they, they didn't think anyone would be oh, able to tell what he yes. looked like. yeah kind of thing because there's definitely a lot of cleanups of older films where you're like oh well that shot just showed <laughs> way oh, more than everything yeah. yeah than they meant to show you you know dario agento stuff specifically i know that's oh. happened to a lot and that is why though when you're doing like restorations of films you should really have the director or at least a cinematographer maybe on hand to be like hey this needs to look like this <laughs> yeah like you can't show him otherwise it ruins it like now everyone will say that that's ricky and not you know well and that's us. such an internet like urban legend right like there's a bunch of people who misconstrue that and actively are like no yeah because it's ricky the whole time man like angela's just a patsy you're just like wait when, what? when it comes down to it if you just take the movie on its own with no sequels sure maybe they both were doing it they were they were a team they're right cousin yeah. team whatever like i <laughs> that's fine <laughs> like but it, obviously in the second one it's like okay they don't even talk about ricky like he's mm-hmm. non-existent it's so funny too though because i, I had seen those theories again fan theories you know, like, oh like, i think ricky was in blah 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 and i'm glad that y'all said this because the whole time i was like who the Christ has time to think about whether Ricky is involved. Like, who, this movie is not complex. It's not dense. It's not complicated. Like, it's Angela. There you go. <laughs> because people love it. People love to speculate, too. Yeah, and then, um, what, oh God, what's his name? Mel is, like, the mm. whole time, he's like, oh, it, it's him. I saw the anger in his eyes. Okay, and 
I know it's him. Okay, Dr. Loomis, take a backseat. But I know I wrote my because he doesn't about Mel is like the whole time, like, there's no killer. He's doing the, the mayor from Jaws until mm-hmm. finally he sees a dead body and he's like, Oh, there's a killer! <laughs> well, basically, he doesn't care until the very underage girl that he wants to fuck is murdered psycho style. And then he's like, Well, now I'm gonna beat the shit out of that little kid in the, in the woods. The pedophilia yeah. in this movie. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, it's wild. It is wild. Okay, so let's jump back to this opening because I think this is the the real introduction of our queer elements, right? So right, right. from the jump, we've got young Peter, who is played by Frank Sorrentino, and young Angela, who is played by Colette Lee Corcoran. And they are out with their presumably gay father, John, who's played by Dan Turstey. And they get run over by a speedboat, specifically John and maybe Angelo, depending on how you want to read it. (laughs) And uh, we also see that John's lover, Lenny, who is played by James Paradise, is standing on the beach watching all of this. But we don't know that at this point. I mean, we know know he's standing there, but we don't know he's his lover. Right, we don't know that. Absolutely. I mean, it's put it pushes it, and then one of the kids actually asked in that scene. I I've literally watched this movie like a hundred times, and I never noticed this until today. Ooh. That they say, "Oh, is Ricky gonna be there?" Mm-hmm. Like, and they're like, "Oh no, he's with his dad right now, or something." And I was like, "I never noticed that." I'm like, "Oh, that's like a neat little like they already know their cousin, obviously, right?" Like, right. okay, like I don't know, it's just something I never noticed. I mean, th- there are a lot of foreshadowing elements, and by foreshadowing, I mean like lines are said that mm-hmm. blatantly point to the obvious. <laughs> but yes. yeah, I, I guess I mean I don't know. It's it's hard for me to say. Is it clear what this character is? Because I, I can't go. I, I don't know what I thought of my first time viewing. Well, they show a young boy and a young girl, right? And then after the boat comes over, it shows the back of the head of, assumably, Peter mm-hmm. swimming and, like, yes. you know, not in, like facing the other direction. And then we see after that, from underneath the water, we, we see, like, the life vest float yeah. up all bloody. Yeah. So, like, right away, if if you were paying it, like, you could be like, oh, well, the girl just died. Exactly. Like, and then and then it, the whole twist is like, what? Like, then in the next scenes later, you're like, okay, when you meet Angela, you, you're almost immediately like, that makes no sense. Yes. <laughs> Which, again, is like, maybe that's the point, is that even if you are watching... Your reptilian brain sort of looks at it and says, like, oh, we're not being presented with a girl. I guess I was wrong. Maybe Angela did survive. Oh, yeah. Like, I just, yeah, that's true. But that is what happens. So we jump ahead eight years after. And this is when we're introduced to Dr. Martha Thomas, who is played (laughs) by Desiree Gold. And she is sending off Angela, who is now played by Phyllis Rose, as well as her cousin Ricky, who is Martha's actual son, uh, who is played by Jonathan Tiersen. And I think the other interesting thing is that if you're paying attention again, uh, Dr. Martha specifically says, here's your doctored physical reports that I made for you. (laughs) Don't let anyone know where you got these from. Yes. I actually, I tied a ribbon around my finger to remind me to mention this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Are you also wearing a blossom hat? Um, yeah, no, I'm actually in full cosplay of Aunt Martha <laughs> right now. No, um, I, I thought that that seems so ob- Once again, like, it seems so obvious, like, that this twist is, or quote, 
twist is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, and then even uh, Ricky says, like, I swear, no matter what, I'll never tell. Yeah. Like, <laughs> the most campiest, like, what? But it's interesting because that means that Ricky has known this whole time as well, right? Like, we're not trying to pull one over on oh, that yeah, character. And it's in part why he's so defensive about Angela and why he tries to protect her. But I think maybe maybe it's because audience sensibilities of 1983 weren't, go- weren't primed to expect a gender-bending twist. And so mm-hmm. in 2022 or even 2005, we were like, okay, that's pretty obvious. But in 1983, maybe it was so out of the realm of possibility unless you were going to see something high-end like Psycho or dressed to kill mm-hmm. yeah maybe that's true because like I, I i feel like by like the 1990s like you already know it's been done at that i mean you know silence yeah. and lamps and everything you're like okay i we're past that now like we we get it like but i could see why maybe even though there is a few notable films like it's still not something that a, a general horror audience of these two movie theaters uh in on the entire world um <laughs> would would expect to see do you mm-hmm. do y'all think that she's actually a doctor? Oh. I guess it doesn't say, does it? The only reason I ask is because, again, in this fucking commentary, Hayes is like, oh yeah, you know, she's a doctor, and Hiltzik just kind of goes, she is? And oh, it's unclear if he's asking genuinely because he doesn't remember, or if he's questioning him like, are you sure she's a doctor? Because she could oh, just be right. saying that. <laughs> right, she she says, I have your physicals here, but I guess she not. Now, wow. Yeah. She's obviously faked the physicals regardless. It's just a question of has she faked it because she's not a real doctor either. Yeah, I mean, she she, she does say, like, uh, I'm the doctor. But again, like, she's also cuckoo bananas. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. One of the interesting reappraisals that I've seen, and I believe it was both Harmony and BJ Colangelo and and possibly Alice Collins for Bloody as well. Like, I think one of the popular new takes is the idea that if you do believe that Angela's father was queer with Lenny and Lenny, for whatever reason, was unable to, uh, say, adopt Angela or something like that, and therefore she had to go and live mm. with Aunt Martha, it's like, oh, well, all of this could have been simply avoided had Aunt Martha not forced Angela to live a lie, and therefore it could have all been postponed so it's kind of like oh queer rights if angela had been able to go live with her gay dad (laughs) right like if marriage was legalized in the beginning and they would have potentially already been together well okay but pulling it back even further though you could have some asshole come in and be like well if he wasn't gay and they didn't see him doing this with his lover they wouldn't be mentally unstable and then also this wouldn't have happened because he wouldn't have had them on the lake with his lover if he was if he wasn't gay no trace you're taking it like we're, I'm no, not interested no. in entertaining ridiculous things like that, but <laughs> no, because the reality is, is that, well, we could argue that this film doesn't really have a lot of deep ideas about how it's using its queerness. It also, particularly with regard to Angela's dad and Lenny, uh, like with John and Lenny, the film doesn't appear to be passing judgment on them. It's not like these kids in the speedboat deliberately go, hey, gay men, let's run no, them over. But 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 I do think if we're going to be talking about potential problematic elements in a film, do I think that there's some ultra conservative who's going to watch this and maybe make that conclusion? Absolutely. Therefore, it could be considered a problematic element. I just think that this film, if you could cut out like less than like one minute of this film, if you just cut out the scene with um with aunt martha saying oh yeah angela that's what we'll call you that makes sense and Mm -hmm. like oh yeah like 
you know, we're I already have a boy. We can't have two. And, and then you cut out the second scene right when um, she murders Paul and it flashes back to them laughing at the dads in bed. Mm-hmm. I think if you cut out literally those two, like, 30-second scenes, yeah. then it's totally different because now it's like, okay, well, she is trans and she wasn't forced. It's literally, like, one 30-second scene in the whole movie that makes this connotation of she was this was forced upon her. Yeah. And, and so that's why it's like, as much as I like it, and want it to be that I recognize that those scenes do ruin it. And also this doesn't really make sense. Sorry. I'm kind of backtracking, but um, at the beginning there's Angela and Peter on the boat. But then in that scene with Aunt Martha, it sounds like she comes up with the name Angela right there. Mm, She's like, Oh, Angela. Yeah. That's a good name. I think it means angel. Yeah. Yeah. We'll call you that. Aunt Martha's like, wait, I forgot that I already had a niece. (laughs) Yeah. Like, (laughs) Like, I don't know, maybe they filmed that before and then they're like, oh, no, we'll just add it to the beginning, too. Who cares? Like, it just doesn't really make sense. But (laughs) I mean, the film either posits that Aunt Martha is either kooky uh, because she's got mental illness or because she's recently been left by her husband. So, mm. well, but again, the film doesn't care. (laughs) She just is. And I, I, I do want more of this character because I love her but it's just it's so the film is over the top as a whole but these scenes with the martha character are in another it's a whole other film of of over the topness (laughs) like people ask robert hiltzik like um what this film means and he's like oh does this film have a meaning and then he stops he goes oh no a meaning that wouldn't do at all Definitely oh can't have that. Like I, that's what it feels like. <laughs> but no, but uh, as much as we like, don't like to admit that because again, we are all like film journalists. We analyze films. Sometimes it's just yeah. I, I was just having fun writing a movie. Yeah, but then you end up with something like this where there's so many rich readings to it that you're just like, how is it possible that the only person who doesn't take something away from this is the fucking person who made it? <laughs> Anyway. Or at least, at least pretend to care, because at least like then I feel like you're helping your your film's like legacy by doing that. I just saw an interview with David Cronenberg, and he said like all art, no matter what, is uh, is political. And oh, he's like, of even if you're trying not to, like no matter what you make, like it's going to represent something that was happening at the time, the people involved. Like no matter what, like it, it is going to be political. Mm-hmm. And I, I honestly, I think it's kind of an. I, I'm talking a little bit of shit. I think it's kind of annoying when someone like Robert, for example, chooses to say like, oh no, it it really isn't anything. And it's just kind of like, really, you weren't saying anything with this weird mm-hmm. like this child who had gay dads and was forced to be in another gender and murdered everyone at their summer camp like mm-hmm. you're not trying to say anything at all like it's just right. frustrating like you know d- to deny that like it's there you know at the very least i mean he, he was he was in nyu film school so maybe he like I, I don't know if he's from new york but maybe if he like he moved to the big city he went to a first gay bar and was like oh let me do this. <laughs> Let me put those, some of this in my in my first movie. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, I'll confess. I I don't know what I find more bothersome: this guy who's kind of like meh, collective shrug, or <laughs> someone like Pascal Logier when we covered Incident in a Ghostland, who would not 
like shut the fuck up about all of the things he was doing and you're just like well you're actually making it worse the more you love <laughs> well, no no no, no. So yeah, I'll, I'll tell you the distinction uh logier's is infuriating mm-hmm. whereas uh uh hiltzix is just frustrating there we go yeah Man. it's definitely <laughs> frustrating all right so um off we go to Camp Arawak, and this is owned by Mel Caustic, who is played by Mike Kellen. He is a cigar-chomping older gentleman, and then the the dude who's actually running the camp, because he always ends up having to appear and put out all the fires, is a hunky, short-short-loving Ronnie, who is played by Paul D'Angelo. And the reason I keep bringing up the short shorts is because, A, fashion goals, you know, it's a hot summer, let's bring those bad boys back mm-hmm. um but also because i stumbled upon emma benston's thesis called oh my god she's a boy the online afterlife of sleepaway camp and in this thesis emma references a critic named yvonne tasker and tasker has written principally about the way that action movies were changing the way that men were being depicted in the early 80s but uh referencing tasker emma says This resulted in male muscular bodies being increasingly more exposed in film, representing a new man. It is possible to interpret this visibility of the male body as a reaction to the second wave feminism during the 1970s (laughs) by seeing the male muscular body as a sign of strength and traditional gender roles. However, it is also possible to interpret it as an objectification of the male body in a similar way as the female body has traditionally been objectified. The second wave feminism, everyone keep that in your back pocket for next week's episode. Um, Wow. Wow. So it's funny. I watched this movie with my parents this weekend because, and Ah. uh, they thought it was dumb, but but (laughs) nevertheless, Oh my God. When the, 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 the male counselors first appeared, they, you know, they had these fucking short ass shorts. They're clear VPLs, like in plain view. Mm-hmm. My oh, mom yeah. just laughs oh, yeah. and goes, Boots, my dad's name, Boots, that's you. And I was like, did dad wear those clothes? He goes, oh, yeah, all the time. They were normal. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's just what people wore. Like, I don't, yeah. I mean, there is a level of like, there's definitely shots in this film that I'm like, they didn't have to angle it like that, probably. Mm-hmm. But like, but I definitely feel like there wasn't a purposeful objectification of yeah. them in this film. And the way that, like, I admit, I do actually enjoy that it is there in this film. But I, mm-hmm. I, I definitely don't think that was uh, intentional as much as as much as I'd like to read it that way. Well, it's it's, it's because for us, it's like wearing clothes like that is like inherently queer like you only see queer people <laughs> wearing, wearing, wearing yeah. like short shorts like that mm-hmm. truth <laughs> yeah, but i mean true. i'll take what you said ted and gently mm-hmm. push back on it because even if there Please. wasn't an intent it does seem like it's specifically one gendered right like mm-hmm. there's a lot of male bodies on display in this movie and there's a very little women being objectified like we don't see tits we don't see any of the girls go in in the skinny dipping scene and that to me seems like a very odd choice considering the clear takeaway that all of the friday the 13th and scene to take was boobs equals dollar signs i do like that actually because there's a lot there's men get shirtless there's an entire sequence uh, the baseball scene yeah Mm -hmm. it's just them playing a sport for no other reason than just to show them like yeah. being physical and like and wearing those clothes and like i yeah. so i could you know i could see that 
it reminds me of a nightmare on elm street too to be honest which obviously comes out afterwards but i was just like oh there's a lot of homoerotic undertones in the way that these boys are egging each other on on the baseball diamond but it's also the boys that decide to go they're doing an attempt to get the girls to go skinny dipping with them but they don't but we get all these boys skinny dipping with Mm -hmm. plain views of their ass whereas in the single shower scene in this movie we don't even get the girl's tits which i'm I'm sure it's because she was on all my children and she was like no i can't do that right but (laughs) nevertheless like yeah we don't get any of that i'm you're right yeah well then even when um even when one of the characters like when kenny brings uh leslie out on a on a canoe right like that that could have been a sexual could have been romantic but instead they chose to have the boy like play a prank and then laugh Mm -hmm. and make her go away like and then like she just is gone after that scene like there's so many opportunities for mm-hmm. the gays to be on the women, and it isn't. It's on the men. And I think that is actually interesting, especially given the final shot of uh, a woman with a penis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's definitely a lot of really interesting uh, interesting ways that they show men in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But doesn't it make it – honestly, I think it makes it more interesting if it wasn't intentional. <laughs> because then it's like, like – Honestly, it feeds the, the the idea that there's a lot going on in Hiltzik's subconscious that he clearly isn't aware of mm-hmm. that he puts in this movie. Yeah, or I could believe some that. enterprising gay was behind the scenes being like, yep. <laughs> He's like, the editor. The editor's like, gonna get rid of this shot of some tits, gonna put in this shot of some <laughs> man butt. <laughs> I love it. No, I could totally see that. So I know we've talked a lot about, like, you know, the reasonings and the transness and the queerness of it all i mean if we're talking just straight up horror movie logic and i use horror movie logic a lot and i'm sure you know what i'm talking about (laughs) right Mm -hmm. but they basically say you know angel's traumatized from having uh her her family killed in front of her or she's traumatized for having a a gay dad or she's Mm -hmm. traumatized because the trans thing like they they don't even have to have a reason for films in the 80s it would literally just be like oh yeah like their friend was mean to them so now they kill people like Mm -hmm. and so like when it comes down to like the the deeper aspect of it like having her go to this camp and kill people i just don't feel like a lot of it was intentional i think it was a lot of internalized stuff internalized Mm -hmm. homophobia internalized Mm -hmm. maybe homoeroticism like maybe he actually was in you know like you said maybe he was enjoying these shots but he wasn't outward about it you know so i don't know it's we'll we'll never know because he has no interest in speaking more on the subject (laughs) yeah yeah true (laughs) all right well let's jump to another uncomfortable aspect of this film uh which is Artie, the cook, played by Owen Hughes, who takes a liking to the children. We get some really fucking inappropriate language when the kids arrive at camp and he calls them, like, super derogatory things about the prepubescent bodies. Yeah. (laughs) And then, of course, he tries to sexually molest Angela when... Basically, Roddy's just like, oh, this girl hasn't eaten in three days. Can you please find her something that she's going to like? And then Artie's like, cool, let me whip out my dick. Uh... In, in case anyone's like, oh my god, this poor girl having like to film this, uh, this she was not present during the scenes when he was unbuttoning his pants. Well, that's good to know. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> also, I'm so sorry, because I, 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 I took it upon myself to, to search for Hiltzik uh, as we were discussing this. Um, I think I found out why he's so bored. Um, he's a lawyer now. <laughs> wow. Oh, Generalizations. Okay. okay. What a choice. <laughs> 
No, he did film school. He did sleepaway camp, and then he went to law school. So that 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 is what he did. And then I guess he made Return to Sleepaway Camp while being a lawyer. Like <laughs> unretired from directing to make the the sequel. I mean, yeah, I I imagine at this point he's probably just so bored with people asking him questions, and he's like, I'm not even making movies anymore. Like, my career has taken a different direction. I wonder if his peers in the law industry (laughs) were like, is this you? (laughs) He's like, don't want to talk about it. (laughs) Stop bringing it up at the holiday party. Right. Mm-hmm. No, but with the stuff with uh with Artie is particularly irritating because um so many of the people around him mm-hmm. see his yeah. uh, see his his like just everything, the things he says and the things that he's doing and they don't really do anything like even the other cook which I know it was camp, obviously, like it's very camped up, but he mm-hmm. says those inappropriate comments and the other guy's like, oh, they're a little young. And he's like, right. Yeah, they are. I like it like that, basically. And then he goes, oh, Artie, you <laughs> pedophile. Like, yeah. oh, it's that's so you to I'm say sorry. that. I think the line he says is, look at them young, fresh chickens. Where I come Oof. from, we call them baldies. baldies. M- makes your mouth water, doesn't it? and here's the thing like Artie is obviously meant to be a despicable character we're happy to see scalding hot water from a giant fucking tank fall on him it's all (laughs) meant to be satisfying but also this is a choice like you don't have to include pedophilia in your film (laughs) well but but if we're talking about camp as a genre Mm -hmm. we are dealing with bad taste and that is absolutely what this is fair yeah I also, in my take, I'll call it, I do view a lot of the murders or attempted murders in this case as that revenge that I spoke about before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not uncommon for a trans person to be objectified by someone, especially like a trans youth in Mm. that way. And so the moment that Angela is objectified by him in that way and, and and attempts to be sexual with her regardless of consent like that was it for him and then obviously he, he you know he gets a tried to be killed in the next scene they right. try and kill him so looking at a lot of the kills in that way as that's sort of what this one means for me it's like oh that that guy he represents that like on look of like oh i'm going to fetishize mm-hmm. this for this reason even if it's uh completely inappropriate yeah and granted i do think maybe that part of the reason why because i'm using this whole bad taste as camp thing you know and we just discussed female trouble a couple weeks ago which is very obviously and evidently camp and so when you have things you know like a man raping himself or or a child getting murdered by her own mother it kind of it it rolls off the tongue a bit easier because of the camp aesthetic of the film Mm -hmm. whereas i think with this it's it's not like that. Like, I, I still think this movie is camp, but it's not that camp, if that makes any sense. I think the problem is, for me, it's falling more into the Nurse 3D of it all, where it's mm-hmm. like certain aspects of this film are delightfully campy. Like, Martha is ridiculous. I think a lot of the things that Judy does is ridiculous. Like, Meg's just irrational fucking hatred of Angela for no fucking no reason. reason. <laughs> Uh, even yeah. some of the deaths, like, you know, we're killing people in really wild ways compared to a lot of other slasher films. But then something like this, I I take it at face value and I appreciate, yeah, it's in bad taste and that does make it camp. But it mm-hmm. doesn't feel like it's being presented with that wink nudge that right. I'm often looking for. No, that's true. 
I think that's also because of the performances, right? Because again, like the camp performance in this movie is that of Martha. Mm-hmm. No one else is really on that level. No. And so again, yeah, that kind of makes the, oh, God, I'm, I'm, this is such a weird thing to try to describe. Like it makes the movie camp because yeah, it's, you get this one performance. that's just so out there and in another film. But again, in Female Trouble, everyone's like that. Yes. This movie, it's just that one performance and then everyone else. And so I, it, it, it's tricky. It, it, it's, a, it's a weird juxtaposition to, to, to okay. have. But I also think that there are a lot of side characters that do have that camp style. Mm, like fair. we mentioned already, Ronnie's character, the most iconic line in the film whoa she's a boy like i'm shocked like like that whole thing like and and then also i just mentioned it a second ago the i don't actually know his name if he even has a name but the other cook who uh works with Artie, mm. who who is like oh they're too young to know what you're talking about and like and then later on and then later on when he's like getting paid off to not say anything he's like we're not gonna say nothing like it's like a caricature almost it's like it's actually kind of a little bit offensive a little bit because there's not a lot of people of color in this film yeah black people at all so it's kind of a caricature in an offensive way but it's also portrayed very camp like a lot of side characters mm-hmm. i feel like have it. i do have a question though so because already does see the person that is putting him in this pot of or pouring this pot of water on him so why he does upon being wheeled out is he not like it was angela <laughs> um maybe he learned his lesson. No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have the answer. Shut. Am a zipper. One thing I love, though, I, honestly, a good drinking game for this movie. It really should be take a shot every time someone says, "Oh, it's you." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so many. Yeah, that's true. Oh, you. What are you doing? What here? are you doing here? <laughs> the boys will be happy to see you. Well, honestly, even when the kid dies in the canoe, he's like. What are you doing here? Um, this person just swam into your boat. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, it feels so weird. heavily modeled after Friday the Thirteenth, where it's just like we're trying to create suspense. Who could it possibly be? Maybe, maybe that's part of it too, though, because Friday the Thirteenth, at least that original, I don't is not a campy film, and so maybe because we're being reminded so much of that, it's where we're having this give and take between all these camp elements and all of these non-camp elements. Hmm. Hmm. Um, okay, so so let's talk about some of these other characters. So we have uh, Ricky's best friend, Paul, who is played by Christopher Coley. And then, yes, we have bad girl, Judy, who is played by Karen Fields. And then I don't know why Meg, who is played by Catherine Cammy, why she and Judy are like this. But, like, Judy makes sense to me. She feels threatened Judy, yeah. by the new girl. All of a sudden, Paul is making eyes at her. What's her deal? Why is she acting so weird? Meg makes no fucking sense to me in this movie. And I find that super intriguing. I personally felt like Meg liked to hold the position of power. So she kind of chooses to like bully and sort of like say mean things to some of the campers. She's, she's, you know, she's supposed to be in charge. She wants to be able to say... If it doesn't go her way, then she should be able to punish these people. And right. repeatedly, every time she comes down on Angela and says something to Angela, the people around her over and over again shut her down and yell at her and stop her. And she gets in trouble mm-hmm. more than once in this movie for, like, singling out Angela. And I think that almost makes her want to do it more. 
I mean, it's a lack. There's a little bit of a lack of motivation, but I could see at least that being some sort of idea behind her character. So right. for me, I, I know it's a movie, so with characters, we're looking for motivation. But for me, I'm just kind of like, yeah, but not all bullies have a reason for being a bully. Some True. some people are just cunts, and that just is the way they are. <laughs> I mean, plus, she's different, and she's kind of, they, they, they make comments about her being, quote, special, and mm-hmm. things like that, and so she's quiet, and she doesn't do sports, and she doesn't do these yeah. things, so of course she's going to be easily singled out to be the person to make fun of, ha, right. we can all gang up on this person, then then we connect better as people, because we're all bullying someone, we're better than them, like, it's just such a childish concept. Who's the guy that's like, Angela, how come you're so fucked up? I mean, what's your problem? And all she's doing, she's just sitting there being quiet. And I don't know about y'all, but as a queer person, like, I was kind of like, well, I get that. The only summer camp I ever went to was a Christian summer camp. And I was very much like a, I was still figuring out my sexuality at the time, but I was very much a, I'm keeping to myself here. Mm -hmm. That's fair. Yeah, that's what former guest uh, Alice Collins wrote in her bloody disgusting piece. She was like, yeah, as... Someone who's struggling with their sexual identity, like, I was quiet, I was withdrawn, I didn't want people to look at me, you know, I kept my head down, I covered my crotch, and so on, and I was just like, oh, okay, that's really interesting, because I think the default reading is, oh, Angela's just quiet, she's just very shy, she's traumatized, Mm -hmm. and... As queer people were like, yep, no, you are trying to stay out of people's focus because you do not want to attract attention. Yeah, well, even in the very first scene, it's almost like because she is trying to avoid attention, because she's kind of different, that it's almost it's forcing her to be singled out from the very beginning. Because in one of the early scenes, when she gets to the camp, she's inside of like their cabin. Yeah. And like they start to ask about what's your problem? Like, what do you why aren't you why are you being all quiet? And they're like, oh, that's the girl that Ronnie told us about. Like, you know, like that's the one. Mm -hmm. So like they got a warning about her that she was off, quiet, different. Like, so they already before they even met heard about Angela as being this person who was different than everyone else. And Mm -hmm. and, I mean, it's sad, but kids single that stuff out so quick. And Mm -hmm. even though maybe if it's a representation of a queer person trying to lay low, unfortunately, maybe you guys can relate to this. Unfortunately, that sometimes makes it worse. Yeah, no, it, it puts yeah. a bigger target on your back because uh-huh. by it, it's it's a weird like paradox. Like by trying to to be invisible, you become more visible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so this also attracts the attention of aforementioned bullies from the male side of the camp, including Kenny, Johnny Dunn, he's the guy in the canoe, and then we have Mike, who is Tom Vandell, and Billy, Loris Salahane, and Billy is the guy who gets the bee stung death. I'm so glad you're telling me this, because I would not have known any of these characters' names. <laughs> yeah, Kenny and his goons. Basically, yeah. <laughs> I do think the film kind of suffers from having, like, it's a summer camp, so you would expect a lot of kids to be there. But generally, it would be more advisable to say, like, here are a core group of people. Like, later on in the film, there's a character named Eddie who goes uh, hiking with a bunch of younger kids. They're the ones who throw sand at Angela, and she ends up murdering right. them when he takes two of the kids back and i'm just like have we met this character before this scene <laughs> well f- uh, a two things about this a um i didn't even when we see the kids 
bodies, quote unquote. I mm-hmm. could not tell you what those things were. So oh, no. Looked like piles of sleeping bags. Didn't know what it was. B, that is the one thing that Hiltzik says. He's like, if there's one thing I regret about this movie, it's the scene where those four kids get killed. Oh, uh, I think please. that was maybe one step too far. No, and I was like, was that not. was one step too far. <laughs> wow, sir. <laughs> Sir. They threw sand on Angela. They deserved it. No, yeah. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I, I'm just kidding because I know that's my revenge take. But uh, the kids mm-hmm. probably didn't deserve it. It's fine. Look, we, we can all have our re- re- revenge fantasies. It's fine. Because uh, all we're doing really is putting the faces of our own bullies on these victims. God. I could see that. But also, like, maybe don't throw sand at a girl who just nearly drowned because she was thrown in by a couple of bitches. Oh, and she, she was faking swim. it, though. <laughs> But but she was faking it. We know because we've seen her swim under the canoe. Uh, and Joe, drown Joe, Joe, it reminds me of the the quiet when they keep making fun of Camilla Bell just because she's deaf. <laughs> God, kids are the fucking worst. Let's be real. Yeah, no, the the meaning of this movie is actually just kids are the worst. Yeah, procreation equals bad. I've actually seen a lot of people say that Aunt Martha is kind of the villain in a lot of ways. Oh sure, yeah, I could see it. I mean, I. I have seen some people say the reason they don't enjoy this movie is because all of these characters are so terrible. Like, you could maybe argue that Paul is okay, although he does continue to make unwanted sexual advances on Angela, even though she keeps fucking running away from him. What about Ricky? Yeah. Oh, I think Ricky's good. No, I think Ricky's good. I mean, he's a kid. He said, he makes a couple of comments like... You know, uh, that are a little bit... Eh. But he's, you know, uh, but he definitely doesn't hurt other people for no reason right. seemingly and he's just trying to protect you know uh someone he cares about for a lot of the film so he's kind of maybe the only character that's potentially meant to be likable like i feel like <laughs> <laughs> well it's telling though that he's also the other character that we're meant to maybe assume is the killer like basically oh, if yeah, you're like nice in Harry. this movie you could be the killer yeah, he is yeah. sort of a red herring. Cause, and then the only suspect that anyone even accuses is him, like mm-hmm. the whole movie, which is when Mel's like, oh, it's him. like, And so then I guess that's meant to make the audience think. I definitely, someone said it was a whodunit earlier. Mm-hmm. I yeah. really don't see that. There's like, right. there's really only like two people could be the whole film. It's yes. not that much of a surprise. I mean, I would still say it is a whodunit, if only because the film keeps hiding the identity of the killer. Now, whether it's a successful whodunit right. <laughs> is another story. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> no, I hear what you're saying. Scream it ain't. It, it's not like, <laughs> oh, there could be 15 different killers in this camp. It's like, well, it's one of the two. Which cousin <laughs> do you prefer? I mean, I like this better than, like, Friday the 13th, because, to be honest... She was not really even in the movie. Like, you no, know what I mean? Not. It's not like it's not like she was a character that was like, aha, surprise, it's been me. Mm-hmm. She she wasn't even in the film. And at least in this movie, like, you've seen Angela as a character. What were we just while talking about, Joey? You were like, oh, I, I wish it was someone we knew. Oh, you know what? Never mind. Uh, put it in your back pocket for next week's episode. <laughs> oh, okay. Spoiling it almost. So let's talk about one of the things that this film, with a relatively small budget, manages to accomplish fairly well, which is decent looking practical effects. Oh, I was shocked by this. I mean, like, there are genuinely great effects. And I mean, like, really good. I, 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 my jaw dropped, I'm not gonna lie. The way that they set it up, too, is like, you don't really see a lot of the murders happen. Mm-hmm. Maybe only one. I think the arrow... 
yeah. through the neck is the only one you actually fully see on camera. Right, mm-hmm. which I love because you're just like, yeah, we know exactly how you did that. Reversing yeah, right, the shot. Right. <laughs> but I, I like that because it it was very much like they didn't have a huge budget, but they knew they could make dead bodies mm-hmm. look realistic. And so every every time there's a murder, it's not the murder that's violent. It's always right after that you're like, oh, wow, like that's dark. Like the, the yeah. boiling water in the face, the bees in the face, the snake in the face. There's a lot of things in people's faces in this movie. Yeah, it's true. A lot, a lot, a lot. <laughs> got a lot of facial action going on in this movie. Uh, I do want to point out that special effects guy is named Edward French on this. He also did the effects for films like The Stuff and Amityville 2, The Possession. Hmm. I had no okay. idea that this was the same guy from The Stuff. Yeah, wow. yeah. He hmm. had a bigger budget on that film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it says mechanical makeup effects in The Stuff, so he may not have been the head makeup guy on it. <laughs> right. Oh, uh, okay. I hope not, because the cop had a fake mustache on, I'm pretty sure. Oh, gosh. oh um, no, that is true. Um, but it was basically they finished filming. They wrapped and that actor went up to go shoot something else that required him to shave his mustache. But then they sleep away camp. Oh, he didn't come back for a couple days to shoot more things. And he had already. So he had a real mustache in the beginning, but yep. then a fake one at the end. Yep. Right. Which was and it was so it was like clearly so obvious. Too. Like it's like flattened down with gel. Like it looks it doesn't look like a genuine like film fake mustache. It looks like something you'd see at like a high school play. The thing that's dumb is the cop was so unimportant in the movie. Yeah. He had mm-hmm. only had like one or two lines the whole time. And like if he had just been a different guy or had shaved, like no one would have even noticed. But the, <laughs> the fake mustache is worse. Like, <laughs> Yeah, agreed. God. He could have shaved. It was a few days later. Like, just say it's a different on. cop. Who <laughs> <Right? laughs> like, cares? Yeah, my buddy retired from the force. I'm new. What's going on at the summer camp? How many bodies you got? <laughs> yeah. Um, I do want to say I don't think this movie is incredibly well directed like it it feels a little workmanlike but I do think the staging of the bees is well done like I like the fact that we very clearly do not have the budget to show Billy getting stung so we see shots of like his feet moving under the stall and the door trying to open but it's like it's a lot of almost insert shots with ADR voiceover and then we get, yeah, the payoff with, like, the raspberries and the other bee stings. <laughs> I am surprised we don't get any shit in this movie, considering he is taking a shit when this happens. Uh, I do like that he says it. I'm just trying to take a shit here, guys. <laughs> I think it's uh, particularly interesting and sort of opposite of what I say a lot when I talk about film, that I'm kind of hailing a lot of things about this movie that I love and, like, kind of i raise a flag for it a little bit in mm-hmm. a lot of ways but i'm also sitting here having a conversation about how much i don't like the director and then joe you just said the directing is not very good good in this movie <laughs> it's like well, we're enjoying it but we're, we're also admitting like yeah i mean it's just kind of it's a standard lot that regular yeah, yeah. But I think that's, I mean, again, that, that's, especially as horror fans, I think we have to do that a lot, right? Where we can say, well, technically the quality of the film is like a two out of five, but my my rating of it is a four out of five right. because reasons, you know? Yeah. I think it's because I'm into a lot of, like, Italian stuff and, like, 70s stuff that I, I, op- I often am saying, oh, it's directed really well, but it's... You know, it doesn't it doesn't really do anything with it. It looks really good, but right. uh, you know, so I think it's funny that I'm sort of uh, it very much is reversing that yeah. today. Yeah, but that, I mean, that's why again, how what have we been talking about for five weeks of camp? Where it's like, yeah, like you can have a film that is quote unquote bad, 
but still rate it highly or think it's good <laughs> because mm-hmm. of it. And that's, again, where so many things like intent come into play, which, again, with this, we don't really know. Right. But it's all a personal experience. You know, it's funny when, when I first started recording this episode and you said you were on doing a camp series mm-hmm. i thought you meant like uh like camping like, oh yeah like summer camp at a campsite. Series. yeah and the more you talked about it, i was like oh camp yes. oh. <laughs> so, so we've been doing campy films but this is the only film we've covered in our camp series that also takes place at a summer camp <laughs> you guys have to do it immediately after another camp series but it's camping just camp right. summer camps, yes. <laughs> yeah yeah there's enough of them. We could easily do it. Oh, yeah. No easily. Doubt. No doubt. No doubt. Okay. So let's talk about another scene that has garnered a fair amount of debate, which is after Paul tries to make out with Angela, you know, the first time she runs away, but then the second time on the beach, she actually has this flashback where she and her presumed dead brother witness her father and his male lover in bed And then we see the two children in their own bed pointing at each other as the camera rotates around. And a lot of people have read this as like, oh, this is symbolic foreshadowing. It's also like speaking to the gender identity crisis. And I don't know. What do you think of this? Um, I don't (laughs) I I feel like when I watch this, I'm kind of like, why is this here? Hmm. And I'm actually kind of genuinely asking both of you, why do you think this scene is here? Um, why do I think this scene is here? For one, let me say, I don't think it should be there. I think I said a little bit about it earlier. I don't think that any of those scenes that are with, like, the black background and Mm -hmm. the beds should exist. But, taking that back, um, I think it's there, truthfully, honestly, because... I don't think that uh, Hiltzik knows the difference between trans and gay people. And right. I think, I honestly, and so I think to him, he's like, oh, well, ha, 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 they're gay. So that's like, you know, the gender thing. Like, And I think they're really, I, I truly honestly believe that there is not any reason why it's there other than just to say, oh, look, she's triggered because of her, like, she's worried that she's gay because she's actually a boy and this is gay. Like, and that's honestly what I think. And so like that scene where she's about to be sexual with a, with a boy, she becomes afraid because she doesn't want to be gay. Right. I'm, I, I'm not gay. Like, I can't be like that. We laughed at that. Well, that's a th- something that should be ridiculed and yeah. I can't be that. And I honestly think that's what it is interesting i I can definitely see that and again that's really playing into this element of like well you can't have uh, those queers around those kids because it's gonna really fuck them up in the head Mm -hmm. yeah which maybe makes me need to walk back the fact that i i think i said off the top i'm like oh this movie doesn't pass any judgment on gay people yeah let me just tiptoe that back a couple steps but again (laughs) yeah yeah the movie i think you can read the movie as doing that but again i'm like well do i think hiltik's doing that i i just think he's dumb (laughs) <laughs> I mean, hey, if that's what you think. This, if nothing else, I, I'm inclined to agree with your reading, 10. I did see a couple of other people sort of suggest, yeah, this is flimsy motivation, pop psychology done incorrectly, an obvious misunderstanding of actually what trans people are and how how and why they identify the way they do. Shockingly enough, it's not like, I saw two men kiss one time and now I identify as a member of the opposite sex. It's like, no, no. I mean- yeah, I, was, I, was, I need to walk back that because he's not dumb because he got he went to law school and got a degree. So clearly, clearly he's not dumb. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, he's dumb in, when it comes to queer sexualities. We'll say that. Yes, there you go. Well, so the thing for me, 
I know I said it doesn't need to be in the movie, but I also could see it being somewhat important. Like when I talk about this film being relatable to me as a trans person mm-hmm. and like why it means so much to me having seen it before and not really fully understanding my connection to it mm-hmm. is that a lot of trans people and especially I can't speak for myself here, but especially uh, years and years ago when there was even less education about these types of things. When you're kind of discovering like, oh, like, how does this work? Like, who am I? There is a lot of like questioning, like, is this gay? Mm -hmm. Right. Like, so for Angela to be in that moment and be like, oh, I'm confused because I was born a boy. Is this gay? You know, like I could see why she she's struggling with that and figuring that out. And she's confused and she's scared. I don't think that was the point. But I, I, I could I would like to think of it in that sense. Uh, I, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, even still, though, I mean, look, I mean, maybe I'm grasping at straws here, but the fact that we even have a gay character in this movie who, regardless of how the film positions his dalliances in front of the children, and we don't really have a lot of screen time with the father character, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to go so far as to say it's a positive portrayal of a gay man, but it's a neutral portrayal of a gay man and <laughs> in in that like he's not like i don't know he's not stereotyped he's and it's a movie in 1983 that has this kind of a character it mm-hmm. chooses to do nothing with this character outside of insert this scene later in the film but on a level i'm kind of like well I, I wonder if there were any queer kids in 83 who went to go see this and said oh my god look like there's a gay man on screen yeah so if we set aside the idea that angela was potentially traumatized by this and it really fucked her up mentally where right. is god etc if nothing else, we Jesus. we do have what appears to be a happy, healthy, gay couple, right? Mm-hmm. One of them was tragically killed. The other one seems very distraught. Co-parenting. Yeah, like, would it have been great to have seen a little bit more of these two, maybe unpack some of this? Absolutely. This is a film that does very little unpacking of anybody, so it's not surprising that we don't get more of that. But yeah, I think, if nothing else, it it is positive question mark to see at least a little bit of representation say the portrayal could be seen as positive the implications could be seen as negative maybe there we go yeah 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 there's a line there that i think uh this movie walks on a lot Mm -hmm. i mean obviously at the end of the day this movie may be transphobic it might be homophobic okay like i can recognize that i can see that like watching this movie it's not a cool trans revenge film it's not a positive (laughs) you know queer thing it isn't those things i know that and so like admitting that is tough but like i I guess it comes back to i think trace you said it at the beginning it's like this is something that's hurtful and i want it to be not that and so i Mm kind of want i see something in it that maybe isn't fully there because i i want it to be there and and right. i'm okay with that no and i think even to i mean look like you know we, we, we we've been having conversations about films from the past that deal with you know again with drop dead gorgeous Joe, where we're like you know this film couldn't get made today right and it's a thing where as i see especially younger generations get like it's not cancel culture because i don't want to use that ter- that term but this like i'm immediately shutting down this property because it's problematic because right. it contains offensive material i it may. It may very well have all those things, but I wish we wouldn't shut them out because they need to be talked about. Like, to me, this is how we all learn and grow as people, as a society. Let's talk about these things. And yeah, you can say it's okay to not like the movie. It's okay to whatever. But to be like, that needs to go away. It needs to right. not exist. That, to me, is doing a disservice. Now, of course, 
that's not cancel culture because cancel culture is like talking about people and cancel culture doesn't exist. But okay, now now you're spiraling. Yeah, I'm spiraling. I'm spiraling. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, I get where you're where you're going though, Trace, because like for me, uh, there are films that have a representation of some kind, especially mm-hmm. in horror. So uh, for trans people, I'm I'm talking like the big ones. We've mentioned them. You know, Silence of the Lambs, something like Psycho, which debatably whatever. Right. Yeah. Dress to Kill, things yeah. like that. And the problem for me in those movies is that I would never see myself in those characters. They're not intended oh. to be relatable. Right. They're not intended to be anything other than this, like, villainous character or this, like, this traumatized character. And they don't have that level of realism to them that, that, uh, can relate to a real trans experience. Mm-hmm. And the reason that this film speaks to me over those other ones is because even though it's harmful and even though it's problematic, the character of Angela goes through and experiences things that a lot of adolescent queer people really do and have experienced. And that's why she's relatable. And that's yeah. why. I like her. And that's why I want this movie to be taken back as my own. Like, fuck that. (laughs) Fuck that. Angela's the best, you know? Like, hell yeah. Like, that's, and that's my take on it. I I get that. I, 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 yeah. I, I like that. I like that a lot. See, it's, it's so fascinating because I feel like the default that you see when you look up this film is something like Lucy J. Miller's article, Fear and the Cisgender Audience, Transgender Representation and Audience Identification in Sleepaway Camp from Spectator. So this is a piece that was done in fall 2017, and it's very much not on the side of reclaiming or appropriating right. this back, reappropriating, I guess. So Miller says, you know, considering that transgender films are constructed by a cisgender author to appeal to a cisgender audience, being transgender is not the point of identification in the films. Being cisgender is the point of identification, and the narrative conventions and visual codes are constructed in line with this. So in the case of transgender horror films, which is a very weird classification i feel but okay uh i think she just means films that contain transgender killers or uh antagonists right so she says the impression is that transgender people are deceptive and dangerous so like in this case miller makes the explicit example of the way that ronnie reacts to angela at the end of the film which is like he he says the really funny line that you said 10 but he also keeps going back and forth between her face and her penis as though like oh it's not that you're the killer and you're a little girl it's that you're a killer you're a girl who also has has a penis penis. and yeah i can absolutely see that reading like i feel like that's where the harm lies but it's interesting to me that it's fallen onto trans critics to say, well, actually, this isn't all bad. Like, I refuse to diminish or, yes, Trace, cancel this movie because I don't think it's all harmful. And I think that's such an interesting, like, this is how we're moving the dial forward in some ways because we would have just written Sleepaway Camp off. And now we're saying, no, there's still good here. and We're not ready to let it go. But don't we... Don't we find ourselves running into that? I mean, okay, look, I have been guilty of this, where I'm like, I enjoy a piece of media that is offensive to a certain group of people. And sure. so when talking to someone from that group of people, I'm like, oh. So I have been guilty of, A, seeking <laughs> their approval to like said piece of media. Right. And, B, uh, 
try I don't know, like trying to rationalize the whole thing, I guess. And so Oh sure. Like let me explain to you why I'm really not a terrible person for liking this thing that you may find super offensive. Oh god, please right. don't hate me. Right. But I also feel like it's kind of we have kind of a flip side going on too, where people that aren't part of the group that are being attacked in a film, and again, like I'm not saying that trans people are being attacked in this film, your mileage may vary, but where people that are not part of that group are getting angry on behalf of those people. Mm-hmm. But to the point where it can sometimes feel performative, but it can also just kind of be like, I don't know, where it's like, (laughs) I'm outraged on behalf of trans people. Well, have you asked trans people how they feel? Right. No, but I'm very incensed. Yes. Kind of coming back to what you said a minute ago, Joe, I I don't know, like, if you were researching this up to most recently or if this is a past experience. You said... When you look for this film, you look for these things, a lot of the times people are saying negative things about uh, the trans representation. And I don't know, you know, what what terms of research that is, but I know for a fact that if you look up like sleepaway camp, trans experience or transgender or whatever, Mm -hmm. like in the top five articles that come up are are a, a lot of really positive ones and we've mentioned them i think already actually which mm-hmm. was uh the the one by um harmony colangelo the one yep. by alice collins comes mm-hmm. up i have one that comes up right away that's on Fazer. and then there's also um one that comes up that talks about like praising how this representation means to those people and i think and these are all uh, have come out within the last like three years. Yes, Literally, all exactly. of these are within the last three years. Everything prior to recently, I think a lot of people had this concept of, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's until people started saying out loud, "Hey, it's actually, okay to like this. I don't feel that way." That yeah. that now the tide has been able to be turned, and maybe and, and maybe people are now able to view it as this. But but that's again where nuance comes in, right? It's either like I'm enraged or I am fully supportive, and it's like, but can't you do both? Oh sure. And actually, yeah, all of those pieces that you talked about, Ten, do a very good job of negotiating that pathway and saying, like, you may find this offensive. This may be deeply problematic and hurtful. Here's also why this representation, in some ways, is very truthful to a trans experience, or this is why I personally connect to it. And I love that. But I also think that, interestingly enough, these are long form pieces. These aren't short, like 300 little word diatribes. These are people who are willing to expose themselves and kind of go to the mat as to no, my experience with this film is valid and real. Isn't it interesting and maybe a little bit ironic that in this conversation where we're talking about a binary opinion system, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're also it's, it's involving a very iconic transgender piece of media. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, uh, my entire opinion has always been it is problematic, but it's okay to like it. Yeah. Yes. Which is like, that should be the default response to any piece of media. Unfortunately, I just don't think we live in that world, which is ironic because, Trace, the thing that came to mind when you were going through the production history, and it seemed like one of the reasons this film gained that second surge of popularity with the guy's website and the reunion mm-hmm. and the Fango piece and that kind of stuff was because of the internet, right? Like yeah. people were able to rediscover the film, talk about it on message boards, create listicles about how the end of this film is so shocking. Everybody's yep. got to see it and so on. And in some ways we can see, Oh, the internet has been really helpful in letting people get in touch with each other, talk about this movie, but it's removed nuance, but 
yeah, in other <laughs> cases, it's very much been like, let me tell you why this film is a piece of shit because it's really offensive. Yeah. Well, I mean, whose voices were out there, you right. know, in 1983, 1993, 2003, literally versus now, like now the people who are actually able to speak on it are like, hey, uh, you know, we don't actually think everyone's been right about this. We have our right. own opinions and we're now able to voice them. And I think that's a huge part of not just this film, but a lot of. Uh, kind of relooks at old films. I knew you were talking about like the age of the internet, and yes, it is very yes or no. You can't mm-hmm. you can't have it any other way, unfortunately. Yeah. And I, while I don't personally feel that way, I, I know a lot of people do, and it is frustrating. But it's nice to see a little bit of a shift in voices as of late. Mm-hmm. It, it's slow going, but I, I I'm appreciative that I even have the platform that I do over some people that still don't. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, I mean, we've had some interesting conversations about how the reception of these films, they all end up kind of getting lumped into either camp or cult or both. And Ten, one of the things that's been fascinating is to watch how the language and the discussion changes around these films as, yes, like more genre critics get introduced into things like Rotten Tomatoes or, you know, republishing becomes easier to access online through things like medium and personal blogs and all of a sudden people have a voice that they can talk about these things and get their opinions out there but also stop reading the same like five white men who publish like... <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> thank you joe <laughs> okay well i mean i I feel like I've jumped around a lot. There's probably one other scene that I do want to talk about, and that's Judy's death. I was going to say it's going to be Judy's death, which, yeah. uh, honest, okay, just off the front, though, like, I, I just never had it in my mind that this is a teenage girl that this happens to. And really, mm. when you think about it, that does make it a lot worse. Not not like a, oh, I'm offended by this movie, but just the fact that we have this child getting raped with a curling iron. It's pretty dark. Yeah. I'll confess I didn't realize that that's what was happening. Like, in my notes, I just wrote, is she burned to death? And then it was only after reading a variety of different reviews where it was like, yeah, she gets it. (laughs) She gets it. Absolutely. (laughs) She does get it, indeed. (laughs) She gets a good curl. What? Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, was there something specific you wanted to talk about or just a general, like, what do we think of this? Because this is the most, well, it's the only death scene, too, that's sexualized, right? Yeah, you could argue that the killing of Meg kind of is, but I would argue that's no. because it has connotations back to Psycho, and obviously she's nude, although we don't see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just her back. Yeah. I mean, again, when it comes to Hiltzik, I think his mindset was, oh, she's the worst one. What's the worst thing I can do to her? Oh, let's do this with a curling iron. Yeah. Um it is memorable, but it's also the least graphic of all the death scenes because it is the only one that really leaves everything up to the imagination. Mm-hmm. I mean... For me, that's like a, the one of the most pinnacle points of the revenge in the movie. This is a girl who said, you know, oh, what are you, queer? Yeah. You don't have your period. Mm-hmm. You don't have any hair down there. You're flat as a board. You know, like all of these comments throughout the film just adding up. And then purposely, I mean, I and also it's his fault, too. So I hate that it's all the blames put on her. But like uh, going and, and seeking out, you know, this boy that likes likes her and like trying to be sexual with him just because she can Mm -hmm. like yeah there's definitely like she's supposed to be the big bad bully of this so i get why it was so uh such a dark death but 
Yeah, it, it's it's pretty it is pretty graphic when you think about it, even though it's not shown. Yeah. And the, okay, this was an IMDb piece of trivia, so I cannot vouch for its like right. authenticity. Mm-hmm. Fair. Supposedly Jane Krakowski was originally up for this role and she backed out when she read the death scene. Wow. Huh. I know. I mean, I, I, this actress who does Judy is great, but I'm just like, oh my god, what, what, A, what would Jane Krakowski's performance look like? And B, mm. what would Jane Krakowski's career be like today if she had done Sleepaway Camp? I mean, let's be real. We're just imagining Jenna, Jenna Maloney <laughs> doing this performance as like her character's age on 30 Rock, right? So picture Jenna Maloney doing Sleepaway Camp, but like in her 40s with the side ponytail. <laughs> well, it's just, it's it's so goofy, that whole scene, because they sort of make fun of the fact that she's reading in the dark, which obviously was stupid and just an excuse. She wasn't really reading, you know, <laughs> but then, but then immediately after that, she's curling her hair in the dark after yes. the guy leaves. Why? Yeah. What? Jay. That makes no sense. It's nighttime. Everyone's about to come to bed. She's mm-hmm. curling her hair. There's no, <laughs> there's no reason why she was curling her hair other than, Haha, we we're going to kill fucking her <laughs> kill her with that. Yeah. Like that's literally all it is. I'm just like, you're reading in the dark. What a freak. <laughs> I just think it's interesting because like we we've touched on how the film has a weird relationship with gender, not just in like its portrayal of Angela, but just like the actual division of gender roles, right? Like boys will go and play ball, girls will play volleyball, but they will also do like arts and crafts and other female oriented activities. And so to kill Judy in such a gendered way, I was like, oh, okay. Mm. So not only is she the worst bitch and she deserves the worst death but also we're going to do it with the most traditionally feminine instrument that we can think of in this cabin like (laughs) you didn't want to shower her with like glitter and then beat her to death with a dildo or something okay (laughs) it's very like it's very sexualized and judy is the most uh i mean are you be the most sexual uh person at the camp that is true Mm -hmm. you know with all the boys around her all the time and so like i get that there's almost like this well actually if you've seen the second one Mm -hmm. we know that angela has this you have to uphold the the sanctity of these things the morality super morality you know (laughs) so of course she gets it like that you know but like in this movie as a standalone it is sort of i I mean it's arguably out of place it is it is honestly like the, the the method of murder i mean like stabbing drowning okay you know bees i also don't really think that this would have killed a person it would have hurt a lot but i don't think it would have killed a person i mean actually now that you say that she maybe didn't die right yeah. she could have passed out but but i will say that, like what you said about the sequels I, 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 yeah this does play more of a revenge tale whereas yeah the, the, the second and third films are more just like oops you're rude time to kill you which mm-hmm. i i like like the, the kids throwing sand oh right <laughs> yeah yes yeah. exactly so, so i i like the motive of this one more but again, but it's because the se- those se- sequels are so silly that it's like, right. yes, of course, that's the reason she's doing this. Of course. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that is more or less what I've got. Are there any sort of final things that you two wanted to talk about? Uh, no, I'm feeling pretty good. I, I've uh, I like we said at the beginning, a lot of these things have been said and that's OK. I, mm-hmm. I, I honestly I uh, should have just pulled up my my article. We I basically 
reinforced my whole <laughs> like my entire point throughout this whole podcast. <laughs> and it's like, why are you even listening to this? Just go read my damn article. Well, no, no, no. L- listeners, like we, we will actually link to that in the show notes. If you oh, would like it's to, not a big no, 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 no. If you would like to read what Tina has to say, please, please, please go look at the show notes. But also, <laughs> you said something about like showing off my hole, and I totally like you. You kept going, thank God, but like you paused for a second. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Follow me on Twitter. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Follow your hole on Twitter. Oh my god. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> uh, well, okay. So yeah, that that is sleepaway camp, everyone. Uh, honestly, I feel really good about that. That's actually like a better conversation than I expected to have. Not, not that I expected about there it. There we go. Um <laughs> so all right, everyone. Well, before we announce what we're covering next week, which I've already teased way too many times, mm-hmm. uh, Ten, first of all, thank you so much for coming to talk about this. This was great. Yes, ten. Oh my god! We promise next time we have you back, you can talk about like something kind of fun for a change. <laughs> Doesn't have to be like heavily trans. This is fun oh, for her. It's fine. I love this movie. It's one of my like all time faves. Honestly, like I- I'm super glad that you asked me. I was excited from the get go. Sleepaway Camp has been something I've been writing about on and off for years. I I yeah, obviously I've plugged my two year old article like a bunch like I've I've always had something to say about this movie and I will continue to have something to say about it even after this so thank you so much for asking me to come on well and if people want to hear more of your thoughts where can they find you on social media uh yeah you can actually find me um on twitter at uh blue iris zero four if you don't have a Twitter, you can find like my link tree. It's also Blue Iris 04. It has like links to some of my columns, some of my music. Mm. Um, I think there's like a podcast guest link on there. And I'm also working on a couple other podcasts of my own that are going to be out soon. And I'm also working on a book called As a Woman that's going to be re-released hopefully next year. Ooh. So I'm, I've got a lot of really cool projects coming up. But definitely Twitter is my main uh, social media. Nice. Awesome. We'll definitely go check that out, everyone. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers or shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers, as well as our monthly hangouts where we talk about hot-button issues with some of our journalistic peers. And if you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. Uh, We would love it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. If you subscribe today, you will get all this and more for our July celebration. Uh, Episodes on horror movie to TV flip-floppers. An audio commentary on the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie to celebrate its 30th anniversary. And after closing out the month on Jordan Peele's Nope yesterday, we also let into that with episodes on Joe Cornish's Attack the Block and M. Night Shyamalan's Signs. So enjoy all those if you sign up for our Patreon. Aliens. Yay. Aliens. But Joe, Mm -hmm. what are we covering next week? All right. Well, sadly, our camp experience has come to an end. But uh, Trace, I'm kind of excited. We're going to tackle something we've never talked about. Sort of double dose, actually, because we've never talked about John Carpenter. Mm -hmm. And we've also never talked about a made-for-TV movie. So (gasps) we're going to watch Someone's Watching Me! Exclamation point! Exclamation yes. point! Yeah, everyone, very excited about this one. And actually, if you if you listen to our Patreon episode on Watcher last month, this is going to be a good double feature with that. So, mm-hmm. really good conversation to have next week. And but until then, we can cross out Sleepaway Camp, indeed, and cross out horror queers. 